Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Masari Happy Hour, Episode 9. As always, we're going to kick it off with a quick disclaimer. All opinions expressed by our hosts and our guests are merely their own opinions. They do not reflect any endorsements or opinions of their companies. This discussion is meant for informational purposes only. You should not take their opinions as investment advice, as you will be solely responsible for your own investment. Hosts and guests may hold cryptocurrencies discussed in this Twitter spaces. Additionally, certain Masari employees are required to disclose their holdings, which is updated monthly and available at our website. I will throw that up via tweet as we kick off. Um, So full slate this week. We're going to start off with the news of last week, which was the tornado cash fallout. For a quick background, obviously, sanctions uh, were rolled out by OFAC and other government entities, um, which caused a stoppage on tornado cash. Transactions were stopped. uh, And as we dove deeper into the week, we also got the news that some developers were arrested. So throwing it to the group, let's start off with just general thoughts on on what the implications may be um, in both a practical and legal sense. It's hard to say the, uh, like the legal implications because it seems like the the arrest of the developer was made, like not in the U.S., but these were U.S. sanctions. I'm certainly not a lawyer, and I do know, like, uh, I definitely buy into the the hopium of like the code is free speech. So you know, maybe there's some ground that that you can defend this entire issue in court. So I, I don't necessarily know how far-reaching the the legal implications are. What's most interesting to me is. Uh, like, what was the intention? Like, is this, should, do you guys think we should be tinfoil hatting uh, that this is essentially like the the impending state attack? Do you guys think that this is just, you know, the government doesn't know how crypto works and it's just a, a misstep? Like, what are your guys' thoughts on this? I'm curious. I mean, if I'll, I'll chime in here first. Um, Obviously, I don't think the government fully understands how crypto works. Um, they had cited that all of the TVL figures um, for Tornado Cash were equivalent to the actual money that was laundered through Tornado Cash. Um, I think anyone that actually knows anything about how the protocol works knows that it's only a, fa- a small fraction of the total uh, TVL was actually confirmed in different hacks and whatnot. Um kind of to touch on like the significance of it. Uh, I think I wrote in my DeFi invisible revolution piece a few months ago about how um, it looks like the, the future is going to be this situation where we have like um, white labeled markets and then kind of like quote unquote black markets. And we're going to have a dichotomy between kind of like an approved version of every uh, DAP out there on these public blockchains that, you know, have KYC um, and can be fully policed by like physical world actors. But, you know, there's not going to be anything to stop the actual original um, black market versions of these. And so I think we're going to see two separate economies form. Uh, we'll, we're like in the very early stages of that. So this just kind of falls into that thesis for me of kind of the white labeled group getting built out um, over time. Like I'm of the opinion that, you know, you can't stop this stuff and the black market per se, or just like the default versions will 
ultimately win out. Um, but curious to see uh, if you guys have differing opinions. So I think it was about 25% are were either sanctioned or illicit funds by confirmed by chain analysis. I think really the goal is just to make this stuff harder to use and to make it, you know, really uh, challenging for folks to actually get at the applications if they if they do want to use them. And I think, you know, OFAC knew exactly what it was doing by by doing that. Um, I also think sort of the the broader implication is if you wanted to really slow down sort of a financial system for calling crypto a financial ecosystem, you would try to tie up liquidity, you would try to attack sort of the movement of funds. And what's a better way of doing that than declaring all funds that touch Tornado Cash essentially illegal? Because, you know, any funds that are in any wallet that touch Tornado Cash are sort of up in the air if they're allowed to be used. Even if you had, you know, 0.1 ETH that went to your wallet from Tornado Cash, what happens to the other 20, 30, 40, 50 ETH that are in there? You can't segment that 0.1 ETH like you could if it was a UTXO model. You have all of those funds intermingled. So does that mean that that entire wallet with all those funds can't be touched or moved? It's it's really sort of a tricky legal gray area. So, you know, I think the government unintentionally has sort of like thrown, um, you know, a lot of question on the liquidity of the whole ecosystem now. So I don't know if that's the intention, but it's certainly one of the byproducts, I think, right now. That's like, though, right? Because like on traditional banking rails, you're pretty much allowed to go do whatever you want. Like on, let's say you're sitting a swift transaction or whatever across to wherever, right? The real the impetus is basically to prove, hey, like person A to person B, that was bad actor, right? It's it's not like you're blocking it at the kind of the transaction layer. Like where is like you know Ethereum transactions is really just a rail stretch, just a piece of technology to say uh, I can send token A from person A to person B. And like sanctioning and like blocking stuff at the kind of like validator level and stuff like that, like that's a it's a different paradigm which we haven't seen before, which is like, you know, just another layer up of like call it, I don't know, like government ability to control stuff, which is, is actually like a relatively like new approach territory that's even more controlled than our current environment. So like I do think like we're stepping and taking a couple steps into like a dangerous territory, um, you know, with these actions. And it's it's not like a it's not like a great design, but like you know, I don't think it's necessarily like we're headed down the dark dark road, right? But it's definitely like whether it's through misunderstanding or whatever, it's definitely like a it's a step in the wrong direction, right? Um, but curious to hear what you guys kind of think around you know like where where are we going like further out? I mean, there, I think there's other implications around in, in DeFi land, but you know, like from a government control perspective, like it's definitely a, a bigger tool than they've had before um, and, and definitely a dangerous one. Mike? Well, yeah, okay. It kind of depends how far you want to take this, right? So I, I think I, I think people have strayed from like the true philosophy and end game of crypto in some way, right? Like Bitcoin was made as a as a pretty much explicit response to bad monetary policy right and a lot of other things came out of reaction in that and you know the ecosystem has evolved and then we all got excited trading jpegs and all of that but you know one of the things that i that i tell to a lot of like uh 
my friends who are like crypto curious and stuff like that is I say, Hey, like if you could buy a house, if you had good economic prospects, if there wasn't high inflation, state control, like if the dollar was good money, right, then there wouldn't need to be a, a Bitcoin or an Ethereum, right? It would probably manifest more as advanced fintech than as a sovereign layer of execution, settlement, computation, and value transfer, right? But this is the direction that the ecosystem has gone because the state has failed to deliver on a lot of things, right? So I think if you start to think ETH is money, Bitcoin is money, well, what does the state have a monopoly on? The state has a monopoly on force and the state has a monopoly on money. But when you start to disintermediate the state from their ability to be the monopolistic power of money, let's let's say it out loud. You are waging war against the state, right? You are subverting the intent of the state. You are subverting the sovereign right of the state because you have made the decision that like the state is wrong. And, you know, I'll go I'll even go crazier to say, like, that's probably the right thing to do. Right. Like, who are all of our heroes? Right. Our heroes are revolutionaries. Our heroes are people who propagate the idea of of civil disobedience. Right. I think there is like a righteous line to say I am. Look, I'm not advocating for anybody to be like actively uncompliant with the state, but you are minimally compliant. You are a pain in the ass to to regulate you are you are not easy for the state to get their hands around right like like so here's here's my question to you guys if you think crypto is in some form money like not all crypto projects right but some cryptos are trying to be money and you think there's value there do you see a world where the state and crypto can get along because i i i don't the state as it currently exists. Sorry, let me, let me, you know, I'll temper the expectations a half step. Are, are we including CBDCs in this discussion as getting along? Go for it. Oh, that's, that, that's like, that's the tech, right? Like CBDCs is the government's realizing, oh, we literally can just upgrade by like doing instant settlement. The CBDC has let us go full, full Orwellian, right? CBDCs is like a technology upgrade of the current system where I would consider like crypto, philosophically and politically as an exit path and as a as an attack vector through subversion on the current system so it's the same technology implemented two different ways with, with two different intents yeah i well okay if we're if we're grouping cbdc's along like um or outside of the general like crypto world that you're referencing here then i i'm in agreement with you that no long term like these things just aren't going to get along like you said it best when uh you said that crypto is an escape escape hatch because um, it's basically a life raft to get out of all of this and if you look at the course of history any form of technology um any movement that pretty much disempowered um incumbent and allowed you know the populace to escape um the powers that be was not treated very fairly um, and was not met with anything but violence. So, I mean, to expect it to be a peaceful revolution, I think that, um, I think Pomp said on his podcast one time, a really long time ago, that he thinks that Bitcoin can be um, 
the most peaceful revolution to ever take place on planet earth. Like I just fundamentally disagree with that. Uh, if the Bitcoin thesis wins out, like I think it's going to get <laughs> very ugly in terms of the powers that be clashing over each other. Do you think we're already seeing like the, I don't mean violence as in like physical violence. I'm just going to, I'll choose to table that for a second. But do you think you're like this, the sanctions, uh, you know, not to like say anyone was right or wrong, but like Canada retroactively punishing people for receiving Bitcoin because Bitcoin can be used like for a level of political opposition, right? So do you think these actions, like if, if I was a state and I didn't know a lot about crypto, but I knew it was a problem. I knew it was probably not aligned with my interest as the, the machinations of the state. This is probably what I would do. I would say, oh, I can blame North Koreans for this one. Oh, I can blame some treasonous truckers for this one. Oh, I can whatever, you know. So this this seems like like the conflict has begun. It's just we're crypto native. So we know the nuances that they don't know. So we lose their intent. We think because the policy is bad that there may be good or bad intent. My argument here is there's probably actually bad malicious intent to the crypto ecosystem, but they're not intellectually in the place yet where a crypto native might recognize that. I have a question for you then. So let's say, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of your thesis, you know, as it plays out, but let's say, is it is in the simplest form, is crypto too small and can you kill it right now? Like through enough regulation right now is, could you actually, you know, have we reached the escape velocity? I guess is, is the key question, right? Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. What do you think, Mike? Dude, that's that's the million dollar question. I uh, actually, I don't know. I, I think it's it's one of those things where like Bitcoin prides themselves in being the most decentralized, but the question isn't who is the most decentralized coin. The question is who is sufficiently decentralized right there could be a world where no coin became uh decentralized and resilient enough there could be a world where it's just bitcoin bitcoin ETH. it could be 40 coins we actually don't know where that line is because the attacks by the state are like incompetent as of right now so i have i have bullish on the incompetence of the state <laughs> if that means anything to you but i i don't know to be honest with you i don't know i don't think so unfortunately i mean if you could have you know, Terra and Luna collapse overnight and have no impact on the broader financial markets or the broader economy. Yes, crypto as a whole is much bigger, but because we have so little ties to the actual real world today, the government could, you know, presumably if they wanted to, decide to hamstring crypto and it wouldn't have an effect on almost anything else that, you know, politicians and other folks really care about today because we don't have those ties in that we're trying to you know work so hard to really to really build so here's a question to you are are those ties like uh upstream or downstream right like the way my life works right now so i'm speaking very anecdotally is i get paid in dollars i buy crypto and uh i never sell uh well i i, tr I trade crypto right but that i i i have i my, my, my net worth, my earning income, all of that stuff, you know, I, I run leverage. So 120% of my net worth is in crypto at, at all times, right? Like I, 
I don't have any downstream use of my crypto, right? Crypto, crypto is downstream of my fiat income. So I don't, so for me, if my crypto wealth went to zero, that wouldn't change any of my real world behaviors because I do set aside enough money to pay rent and buy groceries, right? So it depends on flows. So if crypto is winning mind share, I assume most people will be more like me where it's not like they go dollar, crypto, dollar, then crypto events impact dollar events downstream. But if it's just dollar crypto, and that's what it means to win the war, to win the hearts and minds, to win the psychological battle that is monetary premium, right? Then maybe crypto winning means that a crypto crash does nothing to the real economy because nobody pulls out of crypto to go into the real economy. They're like, screw that, you know? Yeah, but you know, it's kind of like it's kind of like when equities go down, right? It's not that everyone's selling; it's just that equities are so much less valuable that people feel less wealthy and they spend less money in aggregate, and the economy goes down because of it. Um, but what, but what I think could be an interesting use case, you know, as we start to get more ties in the real economy, is when you have more people start doing what you're doing. Maybe not running leveraged books, but you know, start directly going from their paycheck to I'm putting one to five percent in crypto and then you start getting more people who have a vested interest in crypto and do care if it goes down so how does that happen is that having it you know sort of automated in 401ks like fidelity is trying to do or others i don't know but i think you need to just and it will happen over time but we need to get continually more people to actually have a percentage of their net worth in there because that's how you get people to care and that's how you get eventually the government to care and not have them try to to meaningfully shut it down. And it's happening, but um, you know, I don't think we're there yet. I'm interested to hear what you guys think of. I think it's like, I mean, if you play out what our, our bull thesis would have been, right? It would have been, you know, make crypto more approachable to more users, right? Whether that's Tom's 401k or whether that's like just a, a different app for people to use and, and things like that. Uh, I think where it's going to get challenging though is that we're actually like making crypto harder to use, right? You look at what Ave Ave blocked their front end, right? Because of these sort of sanctions and all sorts of stuff. So we, if we like start blocking the front ends and, and making like the accessibility of crypto really, really hard to use, I don't think we're going to be able to get to the point where we're like, like the political ambitions might be there from the, the Michael Kramer class, right? Where they, they want the sort of sovereign money, the sort of sovereign individual as thesis, right? But if you don't really have the usability tools and we've kind of like ostracized even be able to make them, like you can't even put them on the app store, uh, the the front ends are geofenced, all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I do see that as being a challenge unless we kind of like do stand by the fact that like, okay, yeah, this, this is code and people are allowed to use code. I, unless people are allowed to use this stuff, it, it definitely is going to be challenging until you get the political pressure to um, overturn some of this sentiment. So let me, uh, let me full send a hot take here, right? Like how... How wide sweeping do you think the crypto movement actually ends up being? So if you you can think of it one way, Coinbase launching these DeFi wallets, uh, partnering with Circle and all of that stuff brings crypto to like the normal class of people. But then you can also look at the other side of that and say Coinbase, who is who is an army of highly intelligent, mission driven phenomenally like talented people who are having a positive impact on the world but they are by design incapable of being righteous against the state right like they must comply with the state 
So if Coinbase onboards armies of people, but then the state says, hey, uh, you're blacklisting these wallets. Coinbase can carry the crypto mission to a point, but they are structurally incapable of taking the revolution all the way, right? So if you think about it, are these, if you're the kind of person who needs Coinbase to custody your funds, if you're the kind of person who isn't comfortable riding the volatility of Bitcoin or Ethereum, are you going to meaningfully participate in the wealth generation event? Are you going to meaningfully participate in the revolution? Or are you going to fall under the purview of the state? And this is why what's most predominantly interesting about crypto is how classically bottoms up it is. It's, it's in my short, but in my lifetime, crypto has always been bottoms up. It's been weird internet kids on a cypherpunk form. It's been people under oppressive regimes. It's been people who are using stable coins for the true purpose of escaping the inflation of their corrupt local government, their corrupt local currency. So crypto, it, it's, so, it's so incredible to me that the revolution always comes from the bottom and the top down is so unaligned with the technology, with the philosophy, with the religion of crypto, with the political class and movement of crypto, that there's this frictious moment. So I have lost a lot, if not all, of my faith in the narrative of institutional adoption. I think it's, it's much more likely that new institutions are created from the bottom up as the underclass of the world has this moment in time to self-actualize financially and self-actualize computationally to a point where you can literally eat these institutions from the bottom up. So in my opinion, like when I like this is why it was lit when Tesla sold Bitcoin. There's nothing more top down than number three or four on the S&P buying Bitcoin. That's what what are you talking about? That's so anti anti the, the movement, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm joyous that Tesla had to capitulate and had to sell. Michael Saylor's stepping down as CEO and he's on the board. He's being told, yo, you gambled us on 140% company debt on crypto and it's down since we bought it. Of course they're removing him from the board, from CEO. Are you, are you kidding me? It doesn't matter how much vote power he has. He's about to get sued to oblivion for being financially psychotic. These traditional institutions are incapable of holding the volatility, of holding the righteous cause, and of operating protocols that, let's be real, people do launder money with T-cash, right? Like, that's, that's not a false statement. We can argue percentages, but uh, come on. Is there like, oh, it's T-cash is only 1% money laundering or 20%? Are you going to draw the line somewhere? Or are you just going to say, no, we allow T-cash to exist because of the new philosophy of the system we are creating? So I'm bottoms up all the way. I, I, I can't wait for all the institutions to just come in and get wrecked. <laughs> I, you know, I, I have a little bit of zeal, have a little bit of religion about the movement, because what's happening here should be a special moment in time. So, Mike, that was, that was a beautiful uh, monologue that you just had there. My question, follow up to that, is how do the people um, create enough uh, movement and power in order to do that in a meaningful time period 
because at the end of the day, someone still has to continue to build all this stuff. Um, people need to learn how to write and speak solidity and all these other languages and whatnot. There is like a huge advantage of, you know, being able to um, organize capital at scale at the level that these institutions can do and like the speed that comes with that. So what does the bottoms up thesis of crypto mean for the long term? Yeah, it's it's really hard. It's a slow process. I think, um, you know, one of one of the things is Substack is eating away at um, traditional publications. YouTube is eating away at traditional media. But like, think of how long it took to get like a like a Mr. Beast who like is doing like spending movie budgets on YouTube videos or a Casey Neistat. It's kind of funny because like YouTube had to get to a point where someone could become full time with YouTube revenue. So then they can intellectually engage and they can put out better stuff. And then they bring money to the platform, which enriches the platform, which means people can now invest more in these projects. So it's, it's literally, it's a grind. I, I think my answer to you is there's not like a simple solution. And I think, you know, to, to temper some of my earlier statements, right? Like, like, you know, institutions can find a way to like engage meaningfully and like be a stepping stone on that path to the grind before we reimagine the world. Right. But it's a step by step grind. And this is why like all know crypto loses when like smart people stop doing it. But for right now, I, I feel like I'm surrounded by a class of some of the most impassioned, smart, young, excited people and, and not even young in an age sense, but like, everybody of all ages in crypto seems to have so much energy to them, which is not the case when I've worked in other places. So my sentiment check is as long as we keep the energy high, as long as we have a little bit of faith, a, a, a moderate but important amount of zeal, you know, I, I have faith we'll grind away and, and we'll get there. But it takes time for sure. One one last thought, uh, or one last question on on that thought, kind of surrounding the the USDC circle portion um, and circle being able to lock up seventy five k in in assets. Does this open up an opportunity for for other stables? Dustin, I'll throw that one to you. I mean, I think obviously the short question answers yes, right? But um, it, it's still a far way to go, right? If you look at like USDC, you know, I haven't looked at recently. I think the market cap's around fifty billion or so. You know, Tether's probably around sixty billion, and Dai's around six billion, right? So to get from where Dai is at about six, that's about ten x growth, and you know, to get that kind of a growth, um, I think that'd be challenging without having other stables in the mix, right? So uh, does that open up the door for something like a Go or a Curve token? Um, you know. Sure, but I, I definitely don't, I think it's a hard road, right? Because a lot of the the stables are predicated on the fact of, you know, they're, they're used in the centralized exchanges. Um, people need to transfer them around unabated. Um, it's it's definitely like a, it's a challenging road because you need, you need the growth in the ETH asset. You need growth in BTC and these other DeFi tokens to actually unlock the, the stable coin growth. It's not just something that you can say, okay, hey, let's just print a bunch of staples, right? Unless you're, you know, UST. Um, so, I mean, I think there's models that we can experiment with here that does have leave a little bit of room to grow, but it's um, it's not it's not as easy just turning on a light switch and saying, "Hey, let's let's print some stables, guys." Let's roll into our next 
topic here. Obviously, we we got a, a date for the merge. Uh, if I remember correctly, it'll it'll depend on hash, but it should be the fifteenth or sixteenth. Uh, both of the gentlemen that wrote recent pieces um, on ETC, POW, and then some of our liquid staking options are here. Let's kick it off, uh, Chase, with your recent report on on Rocket Pool, and maybe if you could give us a uh, kind of a, a Venn diagram of of each of those uh, each of those options. Wait, are you saying a Venn diagram of these different like liquid staking options out there? Sure. <laughs> all right. Yeah. If, uh, if, if you want to cover them all, great. But um, I would say just from a, a, a fo- uh, focus point, maybe maybe Lido and Rocket Pool would be a nice place to start. Sure. Uh, yeah. So as Doug alluded to, I uh, dug back into the Rocket Pool side of things last week. Um, Rocket Pool is the second largest liquid staking protocol uh, built on Ethereum. And I think they're the eighth overall largest uh, staker on the Beacon chain right now. And so that's behind Lido, who's got like 33% share, um, Coinbase, Binance, a lot of like the big centralized figures. Uh, Rocket Pool has about 1.5% right now. So a lot of room to catch up there uh, if we want to see any sort of, um, kind of decentralized future in the liquid staking world. Liquid staking is definitely a game of network effects. Uh, if you think about just kind of how the business model works, you know, the point of establishing these uh, liquid staking derivatives is so that you can use them in other things like DeFi and whatnot. Um, and liquidity is a network effect game. The more established one of the derivatives becomes, uh, the more likely other people are going to be to adopt it. Um, so while we want, I, like from an ethos perspective, um, multiple winners here, you know, it's um, just naturally from an economic perspective, probably going to co- be concentrated around uh, just a few key players. So Rocket Pool has historically kind of struggled um, to gain market share, particularly because they had a lot of um, bottlenecks on their supply side. Um, that's partially due to the fact that you have to uh, bond the native RPL token to what's known as a mini pool validator. So the way that Rocket Pool's uh, staking system works is it's just a giant system of complex smart contracts. Um, people who run the validators in Rocket Pool only have to stake 16 ETH compared to the 32 minimum regular um, on the beacon chain. And that's because their 16 ETH is paired up with um, deposited uh, stakers ETH and together you get 32 ETH from there. But on top of that, as I mentioned, you have to bond some RPL onto your pool there, creating um, a little more of a capital barrier. So while you know you don't have to do all 32 ETH upfront, you know, you still have to have 16 plus uh, at least like a minimum of like 1.6 ETH worth of RPL. So the Redstone update for Rocket Pool that came up, um, or that's coming up before the merge here, addresses a lot of just kind of like user experience things for the Rocket Pool validators themselves. I came away more interested in their uh, LEB 
uh, mini pools, which stands for lower ether bond mini pools. And the idea here is they're going to take the 16 ETH requirement and drop it further down all the way to eight ETH um, so that more people can um, access the rocket pool protocol from a supply side. And uh, they're hoping that the lower capital requirements will allow for more um, RETH to be minted from the depositor side. Um, I've kind of ranted long enough and explained <laughs> the, the fundamentals of these. Um, I think it's important to point out that Rocket Pool is a very different uh, token economic model than Lido, who essentially just scrapes a little bit off of their um, staked yield and uh, distributes it to their treasury. So if you're interested in diving more into these, I think that's a crucial spot to start with. Um, turn it over to the rest of the group and if you have any questions about just the whole liquid staking landscape in general and how this might affect the, the merge plays. So, so I have a broader question for the group based on that, Chase. So after the merge and after, you know, presumably ETH is throwing off some yield to these staking derivatives, you know, where do we think, um, you know, overall staked sort of tokens move to? and sort of what percentage of overall um, volume of Ethereum? Uh, I, I wish we had Kunal on here because he's got the uh, better takes in terms of um, number estimates. Um, I think that, you know, I'm a little more bearish on um, kind of like the growth of stake derivatives and other people um, just because the natural use of them is really only for leverage in um, DeFi and whatnot. Like you can't pay gas fees um, or block space or go and stake again with those stake derivatives. I think a lot of it's going to hinge on um, if someone like Lido is able to convince like different layer twos to um, accept their sequencer payments in the form of their Lido wrapped stake deed um, and provide like another actual use for that. Otherwise, I've just personally have the belief that um, it's going to be tough for any of these things to gain like significant uh, market share overall against regular naked ETH. Yeah, I buy that too. I think one of the, it's, it's like hard to say for sure. Cause honestly, it's just one of those things where like, I'm more comfortable saying like, it's close enough. We'll just see <laughs> kind of how it pans out. But one of the kind of classic cop outs when like other L1s are saying, Oh, we're at like 60% stake we're at 80% stake or something like that is, so uh, they just, they don't have nearly as rich and in depth as an ecosystem as Ethereum. Right. So the, obviously like nothing can penetrate an ecosystem as well as like the native token right so like integrating eth into your protocol your dApps and all that stuff and stacking and layering to to the complexity of the ethereum DeFi is much easier than even integrating like one singular erc20 and all that stuff because now you're fragmenting liquidity you're adding an extra smart contract layer on there um, obviously like a more like crypto native dev would, would be more qualified to talk about it. But yeah, I, I just think like 
on the base level of the depth and richness of the Ethereum ecosystem that um, I certainly expect when the technical, like when the merge happens and the technical risk goes down, these derivatives will be more popular because people will want to use their staked ETH for leverage or some usage. But I don't think it'll hit the same super high watermarks set by less uh, deeply ecosystemed L1s. I do think there is potential for um, like the growth of staking as a service <clears throat> offered by um, these different liquid staking protocols in order to you know be like the technology layer underneath the centralized providers so that over time maybe um, like a coinbase or some other large staking entity will let's say like commit to building on top of rocket pool or become like a uh, white labeled validator at, at Lido. Um, and so that maybe will get a, some decent flows. Um, but you're also banking on the fact that they don't just try to like spin up their own um, liquid staking derivative. I think Binance has already tried this out. You know, they don't have too much actual use for B, ETH, or whatever one they have. Um, so I'm not super confident on the growth of that either. Do you think the regulatory risk is too high for, for like services like like Kraken and Coinbase and all that? I know uh, I believe Eric Wall has been on a on a tweet storm about like, um, especially in relation to all the tornado sanctions and that kind of stuff. If like uh, I'm not trying to like hammer the same point home, right? But like if a government tells Coinbase to sanction or to censor these kinds of transactions as validators. Um, I'm, ass I'm assuming they would comply. What do you think about like that? That it's like a new wrinkle that hasn't previously been as big of an issue as it has been recently. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think it has much or anything to do with the liquid staking aspect, um, but definitely in terms of like the tornado stuff. Um, I mean, I don't even know how you begin to try and enforce something like that if a Coinbase validator is the one that proposes a block that has like a uh, tornado transaction in it like real world I, I don't know how you're you're able to actually go after them and uh enforce something like that because it's just it's way too big of a problem um in the end of it um but i do think it's it's something that they might try to make an example of a large player like coinbase out of um whether coinbase complies um or takes one for the team and puts the giant army of lawyers up to it uh, and kind of tries to defend it on um, kind of like the basis I was outlining or basis of uh, just freedom in, in the end is up to them. Um, do you guys have any differing opinions? I think what's most interesting is like the the user activated soft fork. So uh, not even like uh, kind of diverting past like the legal things, but do you think like where it becomes interesting is, is Eric Wall saying like, oh, if, you know, some validators through, you know, state pressure or personal preference or whatever start to choose to sanction or not sanction, but like censor different transactions, uh, do you think the, the Ethereum community could even like, uh, 
Like, it's hard. Like, you need to get a lot of social consensus to do a user-activated fork, right? There's so many moving pieces. I can't, like, in my head, I don't even know how that would happen. I'm excited by, like, the prospect and the conversation, obviously. But, uh, like, do you do you think we could start, like, surgically removing validators if things go weird? Does that change the liquid staking dynamic? Because, you know, liquid staking centralizes behind some entity, but only someone as decentralized as, like, you know, Rocket or Lido thinks their mechanism over and they stay in the good graces. Like, like it's, it's such a dynamic social and economic and political problem. I was just wondering, like, uh, what everyone's developing thoughts on that might be. I do think the, the being a liquid staking, something like a Lido that has, you know, I forget what they have, like a two dozen or so validators, right? I think it actually makes it a little easier to do that user-activated soft fork, right? Because now it's almost like you've got this governing body that essentially can dictate around like who these validators are and, and kind of like the direction they're taking, right? Versus not this thing super decentralized. you got thousands or hundreds, whatever it is, everyone coming to a consensus. Um, in, some, in some ways, like I think, you know, if you get a rise of liquid staking in STETH, let's or say, I'm just picking on Lido here, but uh, let's say STETH comes really, really popular within DeFi and all sorts of stuff. And then that inevitable point or whatever comes in the future. Um, I do think like that makes it a tad bit easier if we have like something like Lido that is decentralized, you know, sufficiently decentralized uh, that does control like a pretty large, you know, stake in the in the chain. Then I think it makes it a lot easier to kind of do that user activated uh, hard fork if you need to. Let's move quickly. Uh, Tom, you did a couple pieces, and obviously this is not financial advice, but we've seen in the past um, that there have been spikes in Ethereum Classic uh, when things happen on mainnet on, on the main chain. Um, what have you seen in, in your research as it pertains to ETC or, or how traders might be playing this? Um, and then any insight you have on... ETH POW. Yeah, again, um, let's just hammer home that not financial uh, advice piece, but, you know, just to talk a little bit about how we've seen sort of traders positioning into the merge. So you've seen a lot of open op options interest, call options in particular, which are betting on sort of the upside scenarios of ETH concentrate around that 4,000 to 5,000 Ethereum dollar target price level, which is where the biggest amount of options have been traded. And those options are expiring at the end of September. So, you know, they may be fairly cheap. They may be sort of out of the money bets for people, but that's a pretty big bet because not only you have to sort of reach that level, that $4,000 level, which is obviously more than a double, but, you know, to actually make money on the position, you have to have it exceed that um, unless you're sort of selling beforehand and just sort of capturing some price appreciation. Um, you've also seen sort of spot accumulation of Ethereum, you've seen addresses holding 10 uh, ETH tick up uh, precipitously, also larger whales while it's holding 100 ETH or more, also jumping. Um, and then you've seen addresses actually shorting the futures contract. So what that trade essentially signifies to me is, okay, I'm holding spot Ethereum, I'm shorting the futures contract and I'm lock, locking in my price. And why I'm doing that is to, to get uh, potentially any forks that come along 
with the the transition from uh, proof of work to proof of stake. That could be you know sort of the popular ETH POW fork that we've heard about from um, the Chinese miner, miner uh, Chandler, um, something or other, and uh, that also has support from Justin Sun and a few. I think we lost you for for a second. So, sorry. Uh, oh, you're back. Sorry. Um, every time my phone goes dark, it stops. It stops me from talking. Um, so yeah, you've had a few uh, you know folks uh, you know follow sort of the ETH Pow fork. Um, you know Chandler uh, Miner out of China and um, support from Justin Sun, uh, you know founder of Tron among others sort of pushing pushing that fork, but there could be other forks. Um, you know, Galois Capital has all, has said there could be as many as four or five different forks out of out of this. So, you know, holding spot ETH will enable you to actually um, accumulate some of those. And I think it's important to note that only if you're holding that spot ETH in your own sort of wallet where you have access, um, if you hold it through Coinbase or others, it's really actually up to Coinbase to decide or that exchange to decide if they're going to distribute those assets, those those assets, those um, whatever forks. So in the past, they generally have, but there have been situations where the assets have been so small, or they've deemed them sort of meaningless that they actually haven't distributed the assets uh, to users. Uh, they haven't indicated what they'll do here. It seems likely if there's anything of value, they will distribute it. Um, the exchanges that are listing sort of this main ETH POW coin right now ahead of time, they're listing sort of traded futures on it, um, you can see it's priced at around $70. So $70 per ETH. So, you know, that there is actually some residual value. And while the contracts are fairly thinly traded, um, you know, there, there is some volume that you could actually lock in a position if you wanted to. So, you know, right now, op traders are essentially positioned sort of long spot, short futures, with an additional sort of upside play on a long, uh, long call options. Um, in and around the merge. Um, so I'd be interested to hear what, what folks think about that positioning um, and if they have any other additional thoughts around around the market. I mean, the positioning makes a lot of sense, right? If you're, if you're going to get free money, why not take it? I mean, that, I mean, it's pretty logical. What I don't understand is like, you know, like we've done, we've seen the fork game play out before with Bitcoin Cash and you know, a variety of others, but... You know, like a part of me also thinks like this time is to a degree, right? You've got, you know, DeFi is heavily prevalated, you know, on top of ETH. You've got like a kind of a, I don't want to call it a house of cars, but you've got like a, a big ecosystem kind of like intertwined and intermingled right now. And I don't think it's, you know, it's that easily to fork that, right? You're going to have a lot of kind of dependencies on, you know, within DeFi and all this kind of stuff sort of break down. So I don't, you know, is the value really going to be there for this ETH? proof of work coin, whatever it's going to be called, or these other chains, um, without all that there. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I struggle to see that as much because like a lot of, you know, the previous times we've, we've done these forks, it's really just been around, you know, these, these networks are just payment places, right? Send Tom some Bitcoin, send Mike some Bitcoin, whatever. Uh, versus, you know, the value proposition for ETH to me is, is way different from that. So, uh, I, I struggle to see how it's going to have like retaining value because then you're going to fracture liquidity and all sorts of things. It's to me, I see is a lot bigger challenge in my opinion. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. The point on liquidity fracturing, I think, is is an interesting one because you're you're going to have folks naturally move to some of these other chains for at least a period. Um, you know, whether or not they stay on these chains, I think, is sort of to be decided. But you know, when when you're copying everything that was on Ethereum and just continuing it on a proof of work chain, you have all the legacy assets and legacy protocols that. You know, you don't have developer support, but someone can pick up and run those protocols. You don't have stable coins on the back end. You don't have oracles, but presumably someone could recreate all of those things. And Ethereum proof of work, whatever we want to call it, is going to be more valuable than something like Ethereum Classic, which is Ethereum on proof of work. Um, you know, Ethereum Classic today has less than a million dollars in TVL, has essentially three applications, and is worth over $5 billion. So, you know, if you have just like a proof of work version of Ethereum that still has a bunch of applications that all they need is support, what, what is that worth? I mean, the market's shown us that it's worth, sounds like at least $5 billion in terms of, um, you know, what Ethereum Classic is worth if you're using that as a comp. So, uh, you know, will there be liquidity on this new exchange? Probably, um, at least for a time, but there's also going to be a huge dump. So, you know, is it, a quick dump, it finds level, it finds some development, and then it finds some sort of, um, you know, bounce back. It, I don't know. But I, I think it's, at first, I think everyone's like, oh, this, this, this chain is completely DOA. And I, I don't think that's completely the case um, because there there is a, a lot there that wasn't there for these other forks. Well, like, with, like, stable coins, it's not like, you know, USDC is magically going to go print another $50 billion in the reserves, right? and honor the 50 billion or whatever they've got on Ethereum right now. And if you got so much of your debt or whatever is essentially denominated in this or collateralized by USDC, I, I just see it like not really working out, right? Because a lot of the value is going to crumble. You can't really trust what you've, like all of Aave, all of Maker, everything kind of just essentially goes back to just nothing, right? It's just the transfers. You can put smart contracts on it, all sorts of stuff. But at that point, right, what, how different really is it than Ethereum Classic, right? You might have some some additional NFTs and stuff that you've got on there that you don't have on Ethereum Classic, all sorts of stuff. But again, I struggle to see like where where the value really is, and particularly if you've got essentially a I don't know what to say, but like a, a fallout really from a crumbling sort of DeFi ecosystem. I think it's like going to be a bunch of people trying to pick up a bunch of little rocks and just get out, right? Um, versus oh, yeah, going to be able to sustain, yeah. I think it's going to be an absolute mess to begin with. But remember who I said is supporting this chain is Justin Sun. And remember, Justin Sun has a stable coin. So could USDD uh, or whatever he's calling it could be the stable coin of ETH Pow? Maybe. Um, it doesn't have to have, you know, swaps on Uniswap don't have to have, you know, their base asset be USDC. It could be Justin Sun's stable coin. And, you know, that's, it sounds like chaos, but it's a realistic scenario. And, uh, all I'm saying is there are applications there that make this chain more interesting than I think at the outset everyone's giving credit for. Not to mention the fact you're going to have all of these sort of legacy assets. Like, you know, when, when the chain splits, there's going to be two CryptoPunks. There's going to be the new proof-of-stake CryptoPunk, and there's going to be the old, you know, ETHPOW CryptoPunk. And I'm not exactly sure who gets both versions of those. I think the ver the person who holds it, We'll get both versions, but in the future, will there be a market for ETH POW CryptoPunks? Probably. Probably. Let, let the let the punks and the apes decide. 
Um, anyway, there's a lot of like, the more you think about this deep power situation, if you're uh, even remotely um, interested in going down rabbit holes, I think it could cause a lot of chaos, but is um, open to a lot of interesting potential scenarios, none of which I, I think we all hope uh, mess up what's going to be a cool day for Ethereum. There's also like the counterpoint of mass, though, right? Like if I hand a child a paper airplane, they're going to do just fine. But if I hand ch a child a Boeing 747, we're probably going to have a problem, right? So like one of the interesting problems across DeFi is uh, like the exit liquidity of forks, right? Like I, I look, it was the most fun time of my life, like trading ohm forks, but all of them were abysmal. Half of them you'd read through their docs and they would have hyperlinks in their docs to the docs of the ohm forks that they forked. Their protocols would break pretty quickly. They didn't know how to tune risk parameters. Like these protocols are a, a, a chunk of the ones we use nowadays are much less immutable and require like an actively intellectually engaged group of like developers who understand the metrics, the protocols, like oracles is going to be like, how are oracles going to work on POW and oracles have had insane penetration across all of DeFi. So my thing is like, um, uh, you know, keeping it 100. I don't see like Bantag championing, uh, you know, if POW and Andre is a fantastic dev who has a history of like marshalling dev support but he couldn't bring the phantom DeFi ecosystem alive right it's it's hollow it's it's empty and it's a bunch of like strange forks plus a half-baked deployment of yearn right like it's and then the solidity project like had its own bugs right so i think like the ethereum machine is really 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 hard to maintain and then just one like like marginally technical note here is um uh a blockchain is a state machine, right? It's a bunch of bits, right? And then you throw in some bits into it and all those bits shuffle around and those bits changing is from block to block to block, right? You have this really interesting phenomenon in the technology stack nowadays where like you can't go rewrite IP or HTTP. You can't go rewrite like the baseline of C or something like that. Like the people who wrote that stuff are literally dead. Like it's so old, it's so baked in the technology stack that like it has to work. Right. So if you hand somebody like ETH POW and you're at that really awkward stage of calcification where you need about one more generation of devs to calcify these things to get that mind share where like it just works and we live with it. But you're not ready to make that handoff. But the technical complexity is there. But also you're dealing with code that like currently I can ping the dev and be like, dude, how does this work? But is he going to respond to an ETH POW question? Oh, probably not. So my, I just. I'm unfathomable. I'm very, very skeptical that like it's gonna work. Like you're, 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 you're handing a nuclear reactor to like some guys who know how to bundle firewood. I think Don't the way that any I... devs on POW. I think Got you. I, have, I, have a, I have a parting question for everybody. Uh, I, I think the way that I look at it mostly is Ethereum has historically been defined um, by being, you know. Driven by the community um, and the innovators that are continuing to iterate on it and moving forward, um, we've seen, you know, with the um, the DAO hack, you know, the the social consensus went to where the brains went and where people were going to continue to iterate and push the chain forward, um, and you know, the next obvious stage of Ethereum's life cycle is proof of stake, and I think it would be a mistake to 
um, you know, not follow along the smartest people uh, led by Vitalik onto where the future of Ethereum is going and has been planned on going for a long time. I I think if we want to, you know, just stay um, in a proof of work world, like we have that, it's called Bitcoin. And, you know, that chain has proven that it's not going to change. And that's what makes it amazing. So I guess I'll just ask you guys this as we approach, um, you know, the merge. Do you think this fork or any other fork will have a value at the time of the actual merge and then call it one year from now? Will there be any sort of residual value close to maybe, say, Ethereum Classic? I mean, people still trade Luna and UST. So, like, will you be able to find a bid and will you be able to find an ask? Absolutely. Will it be meaningful or significant in any way? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I straight up agree with Mike. I mean, there's it's not going to be anything meaningful. Like, if you were to put your time frame at, like, five to ten years, you know, let's just basically say zero, um, in my opinion. Tom, do you want to close us out with uh, with our last point here? Just give us a brief, your brief thoughts on the CPI update that happened this past month. Um, we had a, a 0% change month to month bullish on that information, or do we still have a long winter ahead? Um, so just a quick recap. Yeah, the CPI was uh, flat month over month, you know, down year over year. And then we had another reading, um, you know, the producer uh, inflation index PPI also down that following day. So good news at the headline. But underneath the hood, what actually drove that was sort of gas prices coming down, airline fares coming down, used cars coming down. Um, so a lot of the uh, I, I don't know another word besides transitory, but, you know, stuff that is like sort of um, potentially was supposed to pass a lot earlier. The sticky inflation, uh, housing and food prices and things that, you know, the actual numbers as they go up don't tend to go back down over time has actually kept on rising. So, you know, that's sort of worrying from a Fed perspective. Um, you also have wages continuing to rise, which the Fed obviously is worried about because they're still looking at the ghost of the 70s for kind of that wage price spiral. Um, but overall, the economy is still doing well. Um, you know, retail sales are still ticking up, um, and all those metrics are still looking fairly healthy. Um, you know, overall, I think the Fed is still likely to hike between 100 basis points and 150 by the end of the year, but they're just going to be looking at the pace of change of all those things I just mentioned uh, going forward. They released the minutes this afternoon, and I think the key thing out of those was they actually had an active discussion about they don't want to over-tighten, and they're starting to look for signs that they may be over-tightening. So, you know, not a dovish pivot, but they're at least monitoring the fact that they're not, um, you know, going to go full bore 100% um, into inflation territory or into uh, tightening territory, um, which sort of may uh, send us back down our risk assets. So, you know, watching every data point uh, going forward, which makes us all kind of macro Fed watchers, which is... Not super fun, but, um, you know, I think it's an encouraging sign that we saw CPI and, and PPI finally start to come down. Beautiful. 
As always, thank you everybody for joining us. Um, thank you to the crew for sharing their thoughts. Our next episode will be on the 31st. You can catch us from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern. Thanks, everybody.